Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thanks Wes, and good morning everybody. Great to see all of you here. I I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I I had a great Thanksgiving myself. It started with the Turkey Bowl uh, on Thursday morning, which was an amazing experience, and so if you were out there, it was great to be out there with you and enjoy that time. Uh, Wes, who I think is our resident uh, Turkey Bowl historian, said that that's one of the best turnouts that we've had in the history of the Turkey Bowl as far as the the amount of people who showed up. So it was a great event. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I'm still sore three days later from the Turkey Bowl, Uh, but it was a great time. It was all worth it. I'm also a little, I also got a little thing going on with my wrist. I think it happened because I was uh, uh, carrying leftovers from the kitchen this past weekend, which is even more embarrassing probably than the Turkey Bowl thing, but all worth it, all totally worth it. I hope your Thanksgiving was great as well. And of course, this morning, as we uh, get a chance to gather today for worship, we are celebrating the first Sunday of Advent this morning. And as we've mentioned a couple of times, the theme for this morning is hope. The theme for this week is hope. And uh, in that way, I think we are actually in a perfect book and a perfect series for talking about hope this morning. And uh, you may know we are in the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation for you may not immediately bring to mind images of hope, but if you've been with us in this series, you know that we have been talking about the fact that the book of Revelation at its core is really a book full of hope. It's a hopeful book if we understand it correctly. And last week we talked a lot about a bunch of the reasons why we are going through the book of Revelation right now. And this morning I want to add just one quick reason why I think it's important for us to continue through this book, and as we continue to learn more and more about it as we go through over the next several weeks, we've been through it several weeks already, we're about a third of the way through it, we've got quite a ways to go, but I think one of the, another one of the reasons that we go through this book is that it really uh, forces us in a lot of ways to grapple with how we interpret the Bible. You know, the book of Revelation is notoriously difficult in places to interpret because there's a lot of symbolism and those kinds of things. But as we work through that, I hope that as, if you've been with us over these pers- first several weeks, that you've noticed you've been able to pick up some interpretive skills in terms of how you approach and interpret the Bible. And not just for the book of Revelation, right? It's not just a matter of kind of how do you interpret the, an image of a dragon or a number or a color, but also just how do you approach understanding God's word in general? You may know that symbolism happens all over the Bible, for instance. We have symbolism in the Psalms. We have symbolism in the Gospels. Jesus' parables are all about symbolism and pointing to certain things. And then, of course, all throughout the Old Testament, we see symbols repeatedly, uh, even and especially in, in the Old Testament prophets. And so, as we hone this idea of what it means to interpret and understand the Bible, we really hope that that is one of the things you get out of this series. Um, honing those interpretive skills are really as valuable as many of the other things that we're trying to do here. And I know that that's not uh, the most exciting reason why you would go through a book like this, but I hope that you're seeing that happen in your own life. Because the reality is, and as much as I hate to admit this, but I know it's true, given all the hours and time I put into and prayer I put into preparing a message each Sunday morning, I realize that for for most of us, the majority of us will probably not remember most of what I say on a Sunday morning by the time you wake up on Monday morning right? That's just the truth. For some of us, like, by the time you hit lunch this afternoon, you will probably have forgotten most of the points that I labored so hard uh, to write down and to communicate to you this morning. But that doesn't mean that what we're doing here, of course, is a waste. It's a bit of a sidebar. The reason that we gather, the reason that we preach the Word is that it's an aspect of worship, right? We preach the Word not primarily for me, not primarily even for you. We preach the Word primarily for God. It's an aspect of worship. 
And that's why we talk about the Bible. These are not just spiritual TED Talks that we get up here and do on Sunday mornings, right? Because most of that stuff you'll forget anyway. But what we rely on and what we understand is that this is an aspect of worship and we know that God tells us his word is living and with a combination of the movement of his spirit that we actually are transformed in the moment as we worship through his word and as God applies his word to your life going on through leaving here and through the next couple days that there is change and transformation that happens and that is long term. But with all that said, of course, what we're hoping for in this series, in a series like this, is that you'll really be able to pick up on the big themes. I'm not as much concerned about how we interpret these symbols and these little, these these images and these kinds of things, right? Um, I'm not as concerned about whether or not you know my interpretation of what the phrase great tribulation means. That's not the most important part of this series. What's the most, there, there are big themes, big overarching themes in this book that help us to answer the question of why does the book of Revelation occur in the Bible and what is God trying to ultimately communicate to us about it and through it. And there are some big picture ideas that come from this book. And these are the ones that I would say are the most important thing that we get out of this. Because in the end, right, these interpretations, I'll admit it, as much as, as, much as I've, I feel like when we bring an interpretation or when I bring an interpretation of a symbol or something that's going on in the book of Revelation, I believe it's probably the best interpretation as far as I understand it. I realize it's not a perfect interpretation. In fact, anybody who claims to have a perfect interpretation of the book of Revelation is probably either just really misled or is lying to you. Because the reality is these things can be interpreted different ways in the smaller, finer points. But the bigger picture of Revelation is what we really want to get a hold of. And here are the things that we've mentioned. There's a handful of them, and I want to repeat them here for us this morning so that we make sure that we're focusing on the right things. Because we're going to be getting into a chapter that today and in the next couple chapters that are very, very heavy in symbolism and related to some very deep subjects and deep topics. And I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. I want us to focus on the big picture. And here's the thing, is that one of the big picture ideas that we've communicated is that the book of Revelation is not a book to be feared. Although many people may look at it and fear it and neglect it, especially if you are a Christian, this is not a book to be feared. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, that's a little bit of a different story. We'll start getting to that here this morning. But if you are a believer, this is a book that for you is full of, as we said earlier, is full of hope. And the more familiar you get with it, the more hope you see come out of it. Secondly, this book is primarily about Jesus, and that's why it is a book that's primarily about hope. You know, as much as the other things in this book, the images and the symbols and all that stuff may steal the headlines, all of those things in the end are all pointing to Jesus. And if we miss the fact that this book is about Jesus, and if we miss why it's about Jesus, then we've missed a major point of why this book was given to us in the first place. Third, and this relates a little bit to the uh, interpretation discussion that we just had, but Revelation helps us to understand the entire narrative of the Bible. You may know this, but the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation holds together as one big story, one meta-narrative of everything that has existed in history, of everything in the universe, of everything that God is doing in human history, its entire redemptive plan from beginning to end. And one of the things that we see is that the book of Revelation ties all of that together. When we read in the Old Testament and we see these signs and symbols and these things that are connected to uh, what happens in Revelation and we see that Revelation picks up on some of those Old Testament themes, the reason we see that is because those Old Testament themes and symbols are waiting for a fulfillment. They're waiting for for, for an ultimate understanding to be revealed and the book of Revelation does that in so many ways. It ties those threads together to help us understand in the end what God's been up to the entire time. And so the book of Revelation provides for us that understanding and the connectivity of the entire scriptures. 
Fourth, this book is relevant to our everyday lives. We've talked about this repeatedly, but even though this book is a book that was written originally to the first century church 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, and it talks about last things and end times and those kinds of things, the majority of the book of Revelation is about how we live right now. It's about how we live faithfully towards Jesus in the world that we're living in in light of the hope that we have in him. And then finally, we're going to spend more time on this one today, and we haven't spent a lot of time yet on this one in this series, but uh, this, this book is all about us understanding how God is fulfilling his promises. Not just that he fulfills his promises, but how he does this actively in our world today. Not only that he has a plan, but that we see how his plan is unfolding even now, and how that plan reveals his very character and his very nature. Okay, so with those things being said, those are the big picture ideas. Those are the like die on the hill ideas from the book of Revelation. The other things, important, but not certainly not as important as getting the big picture. So with all of that said this morning, we're going to continue this morning in our series uh, on on chapter 8 of Revelation. And so if you have uh, your Bibles, a device, whatever you you read your scripture on, turn to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to be looking at that here in just a couple of minutes. Now, Um, we are actually in the middle of a section, which is the biggest section of the book of Revelation, when we're in chapter 8, that actually started in chapter 6, known as the judgment section of the book of Revelation. It extends all the way to Revelation chapter 20. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about judgment. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the judgment and the justice of God. And I know even bringing that topic (laughs) uh, to the table this morning makes us a little bit uh, nervous because it becomes a difficult topic to address. I think in some ways we would rather talk about anything in the Bible other than the judgment and the justice of God. Uh, These are the kinds of passages and these are the kinds of ideas which skeptics and non-believers will point to as a reason not to believe in the God of the Bible. Because here's the thing, is that the Jesus who loves and the Jesus who forgives and the Jesus who heals and the Jesus who's a wise teacher is someone that almost everybody can get behind. But the Jesus who judges his enemies and the Jesus who sends people to eternal judgment in hell is a little bit more difficult to get our heads around and our hearts around. And there's a reason for that. It is is a difficult truth to come to terms with, right? The judgment of God is a difficult thing to stomach. It's supposed to be that way. But we're going to talk this morning and in the weeks that follow, as we have plenty of time to talk about this over the next several chapters, how the judgment of God is actually an aspect of of God's goodness and God's love. And I think the one thing we can't deny is that the judgment and justice of God are big themes in the Bible, and they are a really big part of the book of Revelation. And so as we continue Revelation chapter 8 today, this is why, in spite of how difficult it may be, it's not only necessary to talk about God's judgment, but I think when we see it correctly, one of the things that we'll see is how God's judgment actually brings us hope in the end. So as a a reminder, though, before we begin reading, in Revelation chapter 8, we are still in the throne room of God. As we pick up on the vision of John, he's in the throne room of God, and the first six seals of this mysterious scroll have been broken. Uh, We had this interlude where there was a scene in the throne room that we saw last week from Revelation chapter 7, and we know that we're in the middle of the breaking of the sixth seal on that scroll and the seventh seal, which is yet to be broken. And we're going to see the breaking of that seventh seal right at the beginning of Revelation chapter 8 here in just a minute. And then the other thing we're going to see in this chapter is a whole new set of judgment actions referred to as or known as the seven trumpet judgments, and we'll see that introduced in this chapter as well. Okay? So that being said, let's start into the beginning of Revelation chapter 8, 
uh, first few verses, it says this. And John says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So it's really just this first verse that deals with the breaking of the seventh seal. And what's kind of remarkable about what happens with the seventh seal is that it's unlike the rest of the six. Right, if you remember the breaking of the six seals, right, after every seal, there's like some big thing that happens. There's four horsemen that go out and bring like famine and death and disease and, and all these kinds of things. And then there's like earthquakes and all these other things that happen with the sixth seal. And then the seventh seal opens. And what's remarkable and strange about it is that nothing happens. In fact, it's the absence of activity. It's the, even the absence of noise. John just describes it as silence in heaven for a half an hour after that seventh seal is broken. And so the question becomes, what does this silence mean? What is it all about? And John doesn't say anything about it either. He doesn't explain to us why there's silence there. And so I think one of the things that we should understand about this is when we're in the book of Revelation and we see something that seems to be significant, which I would classify a half an hour of silence uh, in heaven to be significant. I don't know when the last time you spent a half an hour in silence would be. I mean, it's, it's increasingly impossible to do that in our world full of distractions and noise. But just sitting for a half an hour in silence is, is very unnerving and unsettling if you've done it recently. I've done it recently. I've done like 10, 15 minutes recently, and it's, that's unnerving enough. But imagine like all the activity that's going on in heaven in the throne room, and for a half an hour, there's just silence. It's a significant event, but it's not really explained. And so anytime we come across one of these things, we should ask ourselves, is there something else that explains it previous to this, previous to Revelation, maybe somewhere else in the Bible that explains the significance of the silence? Because I think John, just like if you were to pick up like a book or pick up at a movie towards the end of it and you're, you're realizing that there are certain things that, you know, you haven't seen the first part of it and you're at the end of it and you realize there's certain conversations and certain connections that you're not able to make, uh, the writer's assuming in some ways that you've already watched the first part and so you would make those connections without explanation. John's kind of doing the same thing here. I think John's assuming that we would understand what this silence means because, of course, silence is actually a theme throughout Scripture. And so to see the significance here, I think we need to go back to the Old Testament. I want to explain in three, three places where we see silence and the significance of it. First of all, we see that silence took place at the beginning of creation. Before there was creation, there was silence because we're told in, in, in the creation narrative that everything was formless and void. There was no life, there was no activity, there was no form to it until God gave it form and God gave it life as a part of his creation activity. So there was a time in creation where there was silence before God's creative activity formed all of those things into life. Secondly, silence happens in a very significant place in the Old Testament, one of the biggest events of the Old Testament, one that's actually really connected to these judgments as well, what we know as the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, in fact, God tells the Israelites to be silent at one point. And he tells them to do that because he's promised that he's going to deliver them out of bondage from the Egyptians. And essentially what he's saying is that this is not going to be due to your efforts. You're not going to need to fight against the Egyptians. I'm the one who is going to fight on your behalf, and I'm the one who is going to free you. 
And so as a part of them recognizing God's activity on their behalf, God tells them to be silent and to think on that. God also tells them to be silent because if you remember, one of the reasons why God responds during the Exodus is he hears the cries of his people rising up to him. Exodus chapter 2 tells us that. And so God responds to deliver the Israelites. Well, in Exodus 14, he tells them to be silent because there's no more need for them to cry and to petition him because the victory is assured on their behalf. And so there's silence there. Third place that we see silence, the most really frequent occurrence of silence in the Bible is when it has to do with judgment. This happens several times in the Old Testament, especially with the Old Testament prophets. There are references to responses of silence uh, to God's judgment activity in Habakkuk, Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, as well as Lamentations and the Psalms. And the idea behind this silent response is that when God brings judgment, it shuts the mouths of human beings because there is nothing that can be said to change that judgment. And in many cases, that, that activity of judgment is so overwhelming that silence is the only appropriate response. And so I think we see all those three kinds of purposes of silence woven here and back in, in Revelation chapter 8. The silence seems to be a combination of all these uses in, uh, from, the, from the Scripture. I think the best way to understand the first five seals that are broken on the scroll is that those seals have already been broken. That is the tribulation, that's the reality of what we live in today. All those first five seals of the scroll. The sixth seal and the seventh seal have yet to be broken in human history because they represent final judgment. The sixth seal itself is final judgment. We know that because of the, the picture or the representation of the earthquake, which is commonly, uh, and we're going to see in Revelation, which is commonly a representation of the final judgment of God. And then the seventh seal is a response to that final judgment. They go hand in hand together. So if we put these things all together, what we realize is that the magnitude of the final judgment will be so overwhelming that there will be no response from creation but silence for a while. And this would be both due to the awesome power of that judgment, but the fact that there is no response necessary and there is no response appropriate in that moment. God's judgment activity is carried out by his indisputable power and justice so that even those who experience that judgment will have no response even to defend themselves. God's enemies will be silenced both because they've been defeated but also because they will have no real accusation to be, bring against a righteous God. And silence may even in this case imply a little bit of mourning. The reality is that there is judgment, but that judgment will fall upon human beings created in God's image. So there is a moment of mourning probably that's going on here as well, even in heaven realizing that human beings created in God's image will fall under judgment at the final judgment. Second, the silence is related to God's activity to bring justice on behalf of his people. I think this is where the silence lines up most closely with the Exodus accounts. Go back to Revelation chapter 6. Right, we see that there is a, a, a cry for the martyrs who are crying out to God to say, God, do you see what we are going through? When are you going to act on our behalf? When are you going to avenge the deaths of those who have died under persecution? When we see silence happening here in heaven, just as God delivered his people from the oppression of the Egyptians, from the oppression of Pharaoh, he has promised that he will deliver his people once and for all from the oppression of the world that persecutes them. And the response is that they will no longer have to pray and cry out for justice because God has brought it finally and completely. And third, I think the silence also can be seen as a, as a bit of pre-creation silence. Just like at the original creation, it's judgment and justice and the final judgment that prepares the way for the new creation that will come. 
That in the end, that what we call the new creation, or what the Bible calls new creation, what Revelation is going to call the new heaven and the new earth, what we often refer to as just heaven as the eternal state, is something that God uses judgment to purify and to, and, to bring, and to put an end to sin and evil so that when new creation comes, it will be completely cleansed of sin and evil, and all of those things will be but a memory. Sin, evil, death, and suffering. And so this silence is really theologically significant. And I think understanding this and the combination of God's judgment and justice and the response to it helps us to have more of a robust discussion about why judgment is necessary and what God's justice actually brings us. All of which prepares us for this next set of judgments known as the trumpet judgments. And these trumpet judgments are introduced to us in these first few verses that we just read here. Right? John talks about the seventh seal being broken and then he goes right to a description and a preparation of the trumpet judgments. Where each of the seven angels have a, have a trumpet to blow. And the immediate question we might ask in this is why is another set of judgments necessary? We've already had the seven seals, right? And if the sixth and seventh seal are about the final judgment, then what's left after this? I think the best way to understand this is to frame it this way. These trumpet judgments are not additional judgments that happen chronologically after the seal judgments. In other words, it's not like the seal judgments happen in history and then we've got the seven judgments or the seven trumpet judgments that happen chronologically afterwards. In fact, they should be understood as a different angle of God's judgment activity along with the seals, but also seen from a different perspective and for a different reason. And we'll explain what that is here in a minute. But this introduction that we just read gives us insight into the purpose of these trumpet judgments. First, these are judgments carried out in connection with the incense that's recognized as the prayers of the saints that rise up to God. That's repeated twice in this short passage for emphasis. And what this is telling us is that this is God's response to those who are crying out for God's help, for God's deliverance, for God's attention. In other words, those people like John, those people like the Christians in the first century who were undergoing persecution, the martyrs of Revelation chapter 6, who are crying out to God, God, do you hear us? Do you see us? Will you respond? It's even the prayers of the saints to say, God, this suffering that we're going through, do you see it? Do you understand it? Do you know it? Are you going to respond? And this is God's response. This, these trumpet judgments are kind of God's way of saying, I hear you, I have a plan, I haven't forgotten you, and this is how I'm going to bring it to bear. And so to add emphasis to this point, the angel in John's vision symbolically throws the fire of that incense all over the earth as a representation of the fact that God is doing this and God will make this happen and it leads up to final judgment. So in the rest of the chapter, we see the trumpet judgments then described in detail. We're going to see four of them here today in Revelation 8 and we'll see the other three in Revelation 9 for next week. But let me read that here in, starting in verse 6 and it says this, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepare, were prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. Now the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. 
Now the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened. And on a third, and on a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying from a loud, with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of all the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now again, I think what might get our attention, obviously, when we read a passage like this is that we want to just immediately try to interpret all those symbols. What do those symbols mean? Right? What does it mean that all of this fell on the earth? What does it mean that there's a darkness, a third of the sky was dark as a result? We're going to talk a little bit about how to interpret those symbols, but here again, I want to ask the bigger questions, or I want us to answer the bigger question about why these judgments. To understand the substance of the judgments, we have to understand how they're framed. First of all, they're framed as trumpets, right? Trumpets in the historical context typically represented two things. They represented victory, and they represented kind of the announcement of a king who was coming. That's important to keep in mind. File that in the back of your head. I think the other thing we see is that these things are framed to remind us of the plagues of the Exodus, so if we go all the way back to the Exodus, what we see is the 10 plagues that were enacted on Egypt during the time of the Exodus uh, line up in a lot of ways to the trumpet judgments that we see here. And there's purpose in that. Uh, again, John, or, or, or at least these visions, are calling our mind back to what happened during the Exodus. And what's interesting about the Exodus plagues, if you read them again, I think sometimes we forget exactly what happened there and all the purpose behind all of that. But if you look at what those Exodus plagues were all about, we're told, for instance, in Exodus chapter 9, that the reason all of these ten plagues happened were because God says that he, he was hardening Pharaoh's heart. Is that the plagues, at least the first nine plagues, were designed to harden Pharaoh's heart, actually. Which is important to realize, because I think sometimes, and I think this at times, or I've thought this at times, is that uh, the Exodus plagues were, were designed to, like, scare Pharaoh into releasing the Israelites. But what we're told is that after each of the nine first plagues, Pharaoh's heart actually hardened. Until we get to the 10th plague, which is a plague of the firstborn, where the Passover lamb is actually used there. And as we've seen already in Revelation, the Passover lamb paves the way for Jesus to be the lamb who was slain and all, all that goes on there, right? What we realize is that in the end, the reason those 10 plagues happened is that they were signs of God's, uh, of God's power, of God's sovereignty over Egypt, over Pharaoh, and over the Egyptian gods, because those, those, those plagues actually corresponded to things that the Egyptians believed their gods, their little g-gods, their false gods, actually controlled. And so each time that God did that, he was defeating the Egyptian gods, he was defeating idolatry, and he was showing the Egyptians who the one true God really was, and he was showing the Israelites also at the same time who the one true God really was. And so these were signs of God's judgment, they were signs of God's power and God's authority and God's sovereignty. So, if we bring that back to Revelation chapter 8, what does this mean for the trumpet judgments then? Well, since they're connected to the ten plagues and their purposes in that way, the trumpet judgments have the same function. And what they are, and according along with the trumpets, right, along with the, the aspect or the reality that they are trumpets, is that they are announcing, first of all, the fact that God has won the victory through Jesus Christ. He has won it on our behalf. And that this is an announcement of Jesus as king. These are signs and representations of God's authority on the earth. And certainly what happens in those judgments is that those judgments have a way of revealing the hearts of human beings. They either harden the hearts of those who are opposed to God 
or they, uh, or they encourage the hearts of those who are following Jesus. So if you think about it this way, right? The announcement of Jesus as king, for those who don't consider Jesus king or those who don't see a need for Jesus to be king, it hardens their hearts towards, those response, towards that response. But for those who look forward to the coming of Jesus, when they hear the trumpet announcement through these judgments, it encourages their hearts, especially those who are undergoing persecution, which of course is a big part of the initial aspect of this. So what is that? So for each one of these trumpet judgments, for example, the first trumpet plays out with these images of firing, burning grass and trees and the water being poisoned, which are representations of the brokenness of creation in the form of famine, disease, and death. We see that represented in the first four seals of the seals on the scroll. With the second trumpet, something like a great mountain being thrown into the sea, which represents the corrupt kingdoms of this world. Mountains are often representative of kingdoms or authority or kings in, in Scripture. And when you go back and when you continue in the book of Revelation, we're going to see a very similar image referred to as Babylon, as a big millstone being thrown into the sea. And just as Babylon is described as a violent kingdom, the mountain here brings with it blood as well. As it's thrown into the sea, it kills sea creatures and brings with it violence. And the third angel blowing the trumpet, there is a star that falls from heaven, likely representing Satan and his spiritual influence. In the Bible, stars often represent angels, and Satan is seen as a fallen angel who was actually called a morning star in Isaiah chapter 14. And in that very same chapter, uh, Satan is actually connected with the king of Babylon. Where if you go back to the book of Revelation, what you're going to see again is that there is a dragon behind Babylon directing Babylon as a spiritualized version of the evil kingdoms of this world that are opposed to God and that bring injustice and oppression and evil everywhere they go. And we're going to see more of this later on in the book, but Babylon, everywhere we see it, represents the evil authority of the kingdoms of this earth. And what we see here is that Satan, as the dragon behind Babylon, is the one who is responsible for it all, leading, leading those nations astray, leading the people and their leaders astray as well. So, given the purpose of these trumpet judgments then, that they would display God's sovereign power in Jesus as true king, we can see how these judgments would be necessary and would be a great representation of bringing comfort to God's people. And how these judgments, uh, as they look at them, realize, and as they realize that their suffering is not in vain and that God will eventually bring judgment on all of the things that they are experiencing. This is true for the people who are under the, under the, the, the fist of the Roman Empire and experiencing persecution in that way. And it's true for every Christian who experiences trouble and persecution in this world. And with the fourth trumpet judgment, which is the last one that we'll cover today, uh, we see that there is darkness in the cosmos, a third of the light of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars are covered. Now, this is one of those cases where I think this could be taken either way. Maybe it's literal. Maybe it's, represent, uh, maybe it's to be taken figuratively to represent or symbolize something else. I personally don't take it as a literal thing that will happen or that has happened in the world. I take it more as a representation of the light and darkness, the distinction between idolatry or worshiping or being separated from God's presence, worshiping idols or being separated from God's presence. That's the darkness versus the light being connected with God in relationship and being in presence with God. And G.K. Beale agrees. He's, a, he's a, uh, a scholar who wrote this about this particular scene. He says, the darkness is probably not literal, but refers to all of those divinely ordained events intended to remind idolatrous persecutors that their idolatry is folly and that they are separated from the living God. 
Such events caused them to live in fear and terror in response to their desperate plight. The, the trumpet judgments then, in the end, are aimed at those people who reject Jesus and place their faith in this world. They're designed as a wake-up call, but even more than that, they're designed to be a demonstration of the fact that God will bring his judgment and justice to the earth. And so they're designed to be an encouragement for those who look forward to Jesus returning and to actually the final judgment when Jesus will remove all sin and evil from creation and make way for the new creation that's to come. And so in that way, it's a good thing, and it's an important thing to happen. It's an essential thing to happen for creation and for the future of what God is doing. Now, for those who reject Jesus, of course, the trumpet call hardens their hearts. And as kingdoms rise and fall and idols plunge people into spiritual darkness, people keep returning to the defeated powers of this world, hoping that they'll find what they need in anything except for Jesus. On the other hand, those people who look to Jesus as their king uh, and their hope will celebrate the trumpet calls as Jesus' victory at work and to display his character and his purposes in a world that all around us is broken by sin and evil. And look, in the end, these characteristics of God's goodness are shown through his justice, and they all come from his love. Although it's hard to get our heads around it, the reality is that God's just, justice and God's judgment actually is an outflow of his love. One of the classes, classic objections to the existence of God, you may have heard this before from a friend or family member who is, who is not a believer, uh, is, has been the existence of evil in the world. In other words, skeptics and atheists will look and say there is evil in the world. How can there be evil in the world? If there was a good and powerful God to do something about it, why wouldn't he remove evil from it? Now, this was originally attributed, this, this idea, this argument was originally attributed to an ancient Greek philosopher by the, by the name of Epicurus. And Epicurus basically said, if there's evil in the world and God sees it and he doesn't care, then he's not a loving God. And so he's not worthy of our devotion. But if God sees it and he cares, but he's unable to do anything about it, then God is not really uh, a powerful God. And in that way, he ceases to be a God that we should worship. And so Epicurus said, since there is evil in the world and God has done nothing about it, then there must be no God. That was his conclusion. And certainly, there, uh, that, that argument has gained a lot of following because it makes a lot of sense. I mean, think about it this way. A God who does nothing about evil in the world would not be a God who is worthy of worship. But what we see here is that it's the judgment activity of God in places like Revelation in particular that shows us that not only does God care about evil and suffering, but that he's doing something about it. And that he even takes it a step further, that he takes on the judgment of evil on himself as Jesus goes to the cross so that we don't have to experience the final curse of evil and sin. I think this is key to remember because we are in a section, as I mentioned earlier, in the book of Revelation that is about God's judgment. And over these several chapters, it's going to feel drawn out. We're going to be talking about God's judgment and justice repeatedly throughout this. But I think one of the things that we want to see in this is that the judgment activity of God is a reflection of all these different aspects of God's character, which we consider good. Here's just a list. Here's just a list of what this might look like. The judgment activity of God shows us, among other things, that one, God is sovereign, Secondly, that God is wise. Third, that God is loving, that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is righteous, that God is holy, and that God is just. And we're going to explore those ideas a little bit more as we continue through this section. We've got plenty of chapters to cover all of those things. 
But at the same time, this is a reflection of God's character. And as God brings judgment and justice, he is paving the way so that his glory, his character can be represented to the ends of creation. All of these things, God's sovereignty, his goodness, his justice, his love, all of these things. Sam Alberry says this about Christian discipleship. This should encourage our hearts, by the way, knowing this. He says this about Christian discipleship. Discipleship means asking, what does God love that I'm tempted to hate, and what does God hate that I'm tempted to love? And I think at the core of this, of how we understand this question about God's judgment and justice and how we react is all about that, is that God is bringing judgment and justice to this world to remove everything that he hates and to bring everything that he loves. And in that way, those who love the things that God loves will be encouraged by God's judgment as awful and as awesome and as amazing and as uh, disturbing and difficult as it may be to come to terms with. And as the church, we're called to be faithful, which means to trust God and the faithfulness of what he's doing, to trust that he's bringing these purposes to bear as people who currently live right now as people of hope. We know that during Advent, what we celebrate is that Jesus came to earth as the embodiment of God in the flesh. He had the very nature of God and the very character of God. We also know that when Jesus ascended to heaven and sent his spirit to us, he told us that we are now the body of Christ. And if we are the people in the church who are walking around with the same kind of hope that is represented by the character of God in the world. And that is our calling as we respond to hope. And of course, in the meantime, we wait for God to fully judge everything. And there's a whole lot of not yet going on. Not yet seeing that creation fully redeemed. And many of the not yet that we see in this present world around us every day, what we see with our eyes around us, what we experience and sense in this world, is creation longing for redemption. It's full of brokenness. Right now it's full of sickness and death and sin and pride and injustice and murder and oppression and heartache and broken relationships. It's full of, full of tears and hurt. A world that we find out is not new with every day, but in fact, in many ways with every day, is continuing to crumble under, the own, under its own weight and burden. It's a place where evil often wins, and deceit and lying and greed and injustice often allow people to prosper. Now, Tim Keller, to close this morning, author and pastor Tim Keller, talks about a scene in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and if you're familiar with either the books or the movie, you may be familiar with this scene, but it's, the climax, it's at the climax of the story when Sam Ganji sees his friend Gandalf after believing that Gandalf had died. And when he sees Gandalf alive, he responds to him and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then realizing that neither one of them are dead and that both of them are still alive, Sam asks this hopeful question to Gandalf. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And as Tim Keller says, the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it'll somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. That's the hope that we celebrate at Advent throughout this season. It's the true hope of Christmas. However, that comes through a bit of an unanticipated way, the judgment and justice of God. And as a church, we wait in faith for the judgment of God to take place so that the substance of our hope can be realized forever. And what we need to remember is that it's not God's judgment that makes all of this a mess. It's not God's judgment that makes this awkward. It's actually our sin and evil that makes it such a mess and makes it so awkward. But it's the hope of God's judgment that we long for 
because of God's justice, we have hope in the end. Because he took that judgment upon himself when he took it to the cross. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we're asking for understanding. We're asking uh, uh, for clarity. We know that there's a lot of a lot that we've talked about this morning. <laughs> There's a lot of deep things that we've, a lot of deep waters that we have uh, swam in this morning. Um, and, uh, it, it, and we know that as we progress through this book, it, it, this is what we face almost with every uh, turn of the page, with every new chapter. Um, but Lord, we ask that you would help us to see what we need to see. Lord, that we would uh, be people who do celebrate and understand the way that you are working things out. And although, in particular, the topic of judgment and justice for some of us is a very tough thing to come to terms with, it's a tough thing to understand, it's a thing that maybe even scares us and keeps us even at arm's length from a book like this and from passages like this, Lord, we ask that you would warm and soften our hearts to seeing um, that what you're doing ultimately is good and right, and in the end that it's loving and it gives us hope. I pray that this morning we would be filled with hope. Lord, that you would help us to see the gospel hope that we have in Jesus, that yes, the reality is judgment will come, but we don't have to face that judgment because you have taken it on yourself, Lord Jesus. And so may that understanding of your goodness towards us, your ultimate example of love and justice carried out on our behalf, may that encourage us to delve deeper into faith in Jesus. And for those of us who are wavering this morning, may it convince us that Jesus truly has paid the ultimate price for me so that I could be free and so that I wouldn't have to endure the curse of sin and evil. But I'd actually look forward to that day when Jesus comes again. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks again for being here with us uh, this morning and participating in worship. This is one of the reasons we have a streaming service for people who are out of town for the Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully you're able to join us online this morning, so thank you for joining us. As we leave this morning, we want to encourage you, if you need prayer, we have different ways that you can get that prayer support. Of course, we have our prayer partners uh, that are ready to pray with you this morning. Kathy is our prayer partner for the first service. She's ready to pray with you if you need uh, any prayer as you leave this morning. We also have our prayer cards uh, that are located on the table back there with a cross on top of it. If you fill out one of those cards and drop it in the offering stands, We'll make sure those requests get to our prayer team so that we can join with you in praying together over the needs that you, family, may have during this time. We know that a lot of people are carrying very heavy things right now, whether it's related to health or financial issues, relational issues, that kind of comes along with the holidays at times, and so we want to be with you to encourage you through this as well. So it's great, again, great to see you guys, great to worship with you again this morning. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, 
please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.